It's been well documented that the Kaminoans inhibited the cognitive functions of clones to engineer them to follow orders without question. Ha! We sure don't! Star Wars The Bad Batch is a new animated series set in the Star Wars universe. Star Wars The Bad Batch features clones with cool powers, sweet face tattoos, and exactly one food fight so far. Guess you didn't find that mess hall fight amusing. Star Wars The Bad Batch is some of the most fun Star Wars has been in years. Star Wars The Bad Batch proves that the franchise is at its best when it's animated. You know, like that classic Ewok show. Hoopa, hoopa. This is Galaxy Brains, and today we're doing the Kessel Run in slightly more than 12 parsecs and talking Star Wars The Bad Batch with Patton Oswalt. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. Today, we are talking Star Wars The Bad Batch with our own Jedi Master and the creator of Hulu's new series, MODOK, Pat Oswalt. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's own personal Wookiee, Jonah Ray. Your own personal Wookiee for someone to hear your... And each week on the show, we plot a course with the logical brain, accelerate to the critical brain, jump into hyperspace with the interrogation brain, and hold on, that's no moon, it's the galaxy brain! But first, let's break it down with a little bit of logic brain. Alright, time to cover spoilers from the special, extra-long pilot episode of Star Wars The Bad Batch. So, if you haven't watched it yet, I say fast forward to the end of this podcast, go give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, then treat yourself to some ice cream. You've had a hard week. Anyway, Star Wars The Bad Batch is a spinoff of Star Wars The Clone Wars, centered on the titular band of outcast clone troopers with clever names like Hunter, Tech, Echo, Wrecker, and the Imperial Loyalist Crosshair. After Emperor Palpatine invokes Order 66 and commands the clone army to kill all the Jedi, our lovable band of genetic misfits defect from the Empire so they can protect a mysterious young child named Omega. Yes, that's right. If you love precocious kitties in your Star Wars, you're in luck again. And this time, she's Australian. Now apologize to my friends. I like this kid. Well, she just has an Australian accent. I don't know if the land down under exists in a galaxy far, far away. And when we're done here, I'll look it up on Wikipedia. Okay, so the Bad Batch is hunted across space by Admiral Tarkin, who is not yet a Grand Moff, I suppose. I wonder what he did to get promoted. Maybe he plans a really fun team-building exercise with, like, trust falls and sack races and stuff. Maybe he helps Darth Vader move into his new bachelor pet at Mustafar. I mean, maybe it's as simple as getting some well-deserved recognition for cutting Imperial expenditures by 15% when he ends the clone trooper program and replaces them with a bunch of volunteers with terrible aim. I mean, maybe that's true, Jonah, but you know what? Let's decide, let's debate, let's discuss, let's dally, let's dilly-dally into Critical Brain. Okay, guys, we've dillied and we've dillied again. Here we are in Critical Brain, the part of the show where we put on our thinking caps and we try to figure out what these shows actually mean. Jonah, Bad Batch, this is Clone Wars animation style 
Not my favorite animation style in the whole world. How do you feel about the way that these cartoons look? I never really quite enjoyed how they look. I feel uh, I'm watching a long extended cutscene for video games that I've never really played. They're kind of stuck with it, though, I guess, because if this is going to be piggybacking on Clone Wars, it has to look like Clone Wars. But this animation style, to your point, it's not cheap, I guess, but it looks lifeless. It doesn't have any energy like Paw Patrol feels like it has more energy than this show in my opinion <laughs> but this is this is not just about the animation the animation is what it is this is a show about free will versus programming essentially our bad batch heroes they're programmed to work for the republic which becomes the empire but because they're defective like so many of us are Jonah they're able to make their own decisions and they're able to leave the empire take Omega with them and traverse the galaxy doing good things, sort of like an A-team in space, don't you think? Yeah, of course, but not all of them. One of them still is susceptible to the programming and stays with the Empire. Correct. Crosshair decides, uh, you know what? No, you guys are wrong. Republic, Empire, what's the difference? Crosshair, what is his power? He's a really good aim. He shoots well. Oh, that's why his name's Crosshair. Yeah, and Hunter's, his power is looking exactly like Rambo. Let them come to us. I don't think so, Captain. That's not our style. We prefer going to them. He's got the face paint that kind of looks like, you know, when Rambo puts black face paint on himself so he can hide in the jungle. What's going on there? I'm not sure. Why is it only half of his face? Why is he having it on all the time? Is it a tattoo? Or is it a birthmark? And we're being completely insensitive right now. Do you think if you saw like a little baby version of the clone, he still had a tiny little headband on? <laughs> yeah, he came out of the uh, back to tank with the headband on. <laughs> what did you think about Wrecker? He's a... Uh, uh, only able to be mad all the time, which kind of reminded me of like a Wreck-It Ralph or something. Well, I got a fact for you. I like to blow things up because I like to blow things up. Got it? Yeah, every crew needs a Johnny drama. <laughs> so, and that, like, I think Wrecker fills that part right there. The, the pure id, the pure, you know, just uh, straight emotional terrorism. A big dum-dum, if you will. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're all different, but they're all the same. The character that stood out for me the most is Omega. What's that? Adolescent human female. Origins, uncertain. My name's Omega. I was wondering when you guys would come back. Again, a little kid in Star Wars, I get why they put little kids in these movies and these TV shows. Because the target audience is children, right? Correct. Why not have a character that's kind of like the audience surrogate that can say cute things and go goo goo gaga and have to be rescued all the time? If it's Baby Yoda or Anakin in Phantom Menace or that kid with the broom in The Last Jedi. That's right. He just, the kid with the broom that like opened a door for him. So yeah, he helped him out in the stables of Canto Bite. Give him a cartoon. That's what uh, Disney's been doing. It's like, you get a show and you get a show. Star Wars, the janitor boy coming to Disney Plus this spring. Oh boy. He's going to clean up a bunch of Bantha poop. I guess that just makes this show fit in better with Star Wars because there are kids everywhere. But this is an animated series versus live action. Like some of the, the most exciting moments in Star Wars in the last few years uh, have been animation. But now we've got The Mandalorian, which is, I think, the first 
Star Wars thing since the first Star Wars movie where everyone was like, that was good. Yes. Is there something wrong with Star Wars fandom that we all can't just agree that stuff is good? There's a lot of antagonism in Star Wars fandom that I find. There's the sect that if you don't follow along with the extended universe novels, because those became canon out of nowhere during that huge gap of time between the original trilogy and then the, the prequels, everyone just went and said, okay, now it's the books that are doing the work. And anything that doesn't go along with books, they get upset with. But then there's some people that just watch the movies. I don't think anybody really cares about Star Wars novels anymore. They released a ton of them around the sequel trilogy that people weren't really talking about. But the cartoons, stuff like The Bad Batch, that's where the true fans, like the hardcore fans, are flocking now. Whereas we cannot agree on whether or not The Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker or Force Awakens were any good. Everybody in Star Wars fandom agrees these cartoons are great, that Clone Wars and Rebels and now Bad Batch are worth your time and in some cases better than what they're making in live action. Why do you think that is, Jonah? The people are like, okay, the cartoons, I like those. The live action, it just splits people right down the middle. You know, I have I have no clue why those are kind of universally loved the way they are, the way they're embraced. But I remember people going like, no, but Clone Wars, that's that's the good shit. And I, I remember just not not understanding why. It's just people gravitate towards them so much. I think part of what it is, is that when Star Wars is animated, anything is possible. You don't have to worry about the limitations of physical uh, special effects. You don't have to worry about creating worlds. It could just be about the storytelling. And the stakes are lower. If it's an animated series, a lot of people just kind of write it off. Like, oh, okay, this is just a cartoon for children, like you said. Whereas a live action movies and TV shows have this immense pressure on them to be canon in the case of the Mandalorian season two finale. You have to bring back Luke Skywalker because in the time period he should be around and where is he? And he finally shows up and he takes baby Yoda and he flies off in his X-Wing. That is different in the cartoons. It's not the same sort of like visceral, like, oh, this is just like the movies. This has to be just like the movies. So I think the pressure of success is lower and they're allowed to just kind of like tell good stories in the Star Wars universe. You know, Bad Batch is not about Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Rey and Finn and all that stuff. This is a, a show set in a period of, of Star Wars history we haven't seen a lot of right after Revenge of the Sith where the Empire is just kind of forming. And so there are interesting elements to this show that we've never talked about in Star Wars. For instance, specifically why there are no clone troopers and they are replaced. Why is it that they're replaced with regular people? Because it's cheaper. <laughs> because Admiral Tarkin is cheap. I kind of love that. That's a very adult idea of like, okay, we've just fought this civil war and now we're kind of running out of money. Do you buy this explanation? Uh, and do you like when Star Wars is kind of both adult and childlike and low stakes in this way. Yeah, in a way, I mean, it does get a lot uh, by just being tangentially involved with the larger story. I have a feeling sometimes that that's the magic trick with a lot of these Star Wars spinoffs is that you just kind of go like, if, and this is how that affected that thing from the movie you remember. Everyone goes like, oh, this is great at all. It's all, it's all been planned. When George Lucas wrote every single thing we've been watching uh, in 1975, on a piece of notepaper, uh, it's all been pre-planned. It was always a part of the grand scheme of things. That's the feeling you get, the thing that you wanted him to have it all planned from the very beginning. Well, that is the genius of Dave Filoni, who is kind of the overlord of Star Wars and animation, is now doing a lot more with the live action 
in that he's a major creative force behind The Mandalorian and the upcoming Boba Fett spinoff and, and all of these things that are happening on Disney Plus in live action. He is able to take things that a lot of fans probably thought were plot holes or inconsistencies and fill them in and make it feel like a, a more rich tapestry. Star Wars originally started as mostly practical effects. 1977, when Star Wars A New Hope came out, all you could do really was rudimentary computer graphics and puppets and models and practical explosions. You know, the explosion of the Death Star, they had to blow up a real thing in order for that to, to be pulled off. Uh, all the, the camera movements that made it seem like those X-Wings were flying around were physical camera movements. That's totally different than what we, we have now, where it's all made in a computer. So uh, the movies have this tactile sense of this is all could be real. I think kids now would probably look at that stuff and say that's fake <laughs> because it's obviously model work. And that's why George Lucas went to the trouble of, you know, doing what he did to his movies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what made a lot of moments of Mandalorian great was the it just felt like something was there. There's a weight to it. There's a real weight to something that I don't think CGI has been able to pull off yet. We criticize the prequels a ton because the special effects are are kind of cartoonish and silly looking. But when those designs are put into an actual cartoon, they feel better. They You take the uncanny valley element out of it you no longer are like oh that's a that's a cgi spaceship it doesn't feel real and now the entire world is unreal and so of course you see the beauty of some of those designs you see the kind of regalness of the pre-clone wars republic because you're not thinking about oh that's not real looking because everything is fake that's what's beautiful about star wars it is a fantasy and by watching these stories told in animation, what you're seeing is the pure fantasy of it. You are not trying to make it real. You are not trying to bring it down to earth. You are just accepting the storytelling. You're accepting the fantasy, the imagination, and the illusion of Star Wars, which is what we should be thinking about no matter what we're watching from the Star Wars universe. Now there's a whole generation coming up saying that the prequels weren't that bad. Yeah, all of my children will feel that way and good for them because they are amazing. Mooey, mooey, I love you. Misa caught Jaja Binks. Misa, your humble servant. Well, let's, let's pull the Band-Aid off, Jonah. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. Let's just have the conversation. The Star Wars prequels, we've, we've, we've danced around it. The elephant is in the room and he's breaking all of our China, all of our fine China. Do you like the prequels? That was the, the, the point in time. That was the inflection point in Star Wars where it went from, okay, we've got a bunch of practical effects and Jim Henson puppets and stuff to everything is now CGI from the characters all the way to the sets, to the, uh, the locations, the spaceships, everything is computers. So did you like them? Did you hate them? Are you ambivalent? I became ambivalent. I remember I went and saw it. You know, I was, I think it was, I was a senior in high school when the episode one came out and I went and saw it and walked out. I wasn't sure what I had just seen. I had <laughs> no idea. I was like, I don't think I'm smart enough to know what this C-SPAN, uh, you know, like just like people talking to the Senate. Like, I don't think I picked up any of that storyline in the uh, original trilogy. And so I went and saw it again a few days later just to make sure. I was just like, and I remember just like, I was like, oh, I don't really care. <laughs> I, it's like I became, that's when I became ambivalent was my second scene by myself. 
uh, at a movie theater watching episode one as a you know seventeen year old kid, just going like, "Oh, I don't think I like these movies." <laughs> yeah, I despised them uh, when I first saw them, and this was you know the early part of the internet when ain't it cool news and stuff were spoiling uh, films, and like you'd have to spend hours and hours downloading the trailer for Star Wars Episode One on your fifty six k modem or something. So I was hyped up, but I hadn't had the experience ruined for me. It wasn't like today if, let's say, you know, Star Wars Episode One came out today. There was no Star Wars before that, and it came out in 2021 today. It would have been trashed by critics. It would have been like people would have been complaining for months and months and months and months. But when I first saw it, I wasn't spoiled. I wasn't I wasn't tainted. I, I, I went into it expecting to have a good time, probably because I was also a teenager and didn't have as much cynicism as I do now. And I hated it still. I still hated it. I still thought it was too long. It was it was way more of an adult movie, which is interesting because everyone just talked about how he kidified it. Remember that? Remember there was a lot of people just going like, oh, this is he made this for kids. But it's actually the, the stuff they talk about is way more heavy. He took one line from the first Star Wars movie that they have dissolved the Senate and he made an entire movie out of it. Like, well, yes. okay, so they've got a Senate. Okay, that means that they've got to, they're going to debate some things and they're going to debate taxation and trade routes. Okay, perfect. We've got a movie. <laughs> like, no, we don't have a movie yet, George. Wait, hold on. No, this is not fun. Uh, and I think that's what the cartoons, what the animated Star Wars get so right, Jonah, is they never forget that these things are for kids, that Star Wars is the best when it is for children, when it is uh, fun, when it is light, but it has some heft to it. Some some feeling of, you know, what is it like to be an adult? What is it like to go from being a kid to an adult? And that's what the first Star Wars is about. It is about a child, a teenager, going from youth to adulthood. And that transition is difficult for him. He has to fight his dad. He has to make friends. He has to decide if he's in love with this girl or if she's his sister. Like there's a lot going on that I think we all can relate to, right? Uh, That is not the case in the prequel movies. It is about a sociopath who uh, just kills a bunch of children in the third movie and becomes a villain. Like you can't really, I don't relate to that. I don't know if you do, Jonah, but the cartoons are that and bad batch is about growing up too it is about these five characters realizing that they have free will and what are you going to do with that are you going to make the good moral choice are you going to make the selfish wrong choice and just fit in with everybody else that's the thing about the clone wars is the clone wars took the things about the prequels that were cool the visuals the set design the spaceships some of this this the political intrigue and distilled it into what makes Star Wars great, which is fun and meditations on growing up. Okay, so you're saying the Star Wars anime series are great. Yes, okay. Uh, But like, how can you compare them to the films? The original trilogy literally changed movies forever. Yes, 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 yes. But Star Wars was able to accomplish that by basically being animation themselves. They were full of imagination and propulsive editing and reality-defying stunts and creatures that looked like they were plucked out of Saturday morning cartoons. The original trilogy was mostly practical effects. I know, we've been over that, but because technology hadn't evolved enough to reach Star Wars' true potential as a hybrid of live action and animation, not for any other reason. 
With the prequel trilogy, George Lucas had the tools at his disposal to create sets, locations, and entire alien races inside a little tiny computer. And you think that was good? Uh, no, not really, but it's art, Jonah. I love art. Art like episode one, The Phantom Menace. So you're saying Wado is a net positive for human civilization in your estimation? Sure. Absolutely. No, Jonah, I don't think Watto is a net positive for human civilization when you look at him from a holistic standpoint of, you know, the problematic, uh, ethnically insensitive parts of the character. But I do think he's art. Yes, Republic credits will do fine, Jonah. Star Wars is a fantasy, a story where writers, directors, animators, set designers, costumers, and actors can express their creativity without limits. That's what made the Star Wars universe so intoxicating, and that's what's made it endure for decades. The best of Star Wars is animated because Star Wars has animation in its very Kaminoian DNA. Dave. Yes, my young Padawan? Galaxy braining you are! Now this is podcasting! Oh, God. When we come back from the break, we're going to work on our Yodas and our puns. And we'll be joined by Star Wars fanatic and the big brain behind Hulu's MODOK, Patton Oswalt. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Like the high rollers of Canto Bite, we have risked it all to advocate for the Star Wars animated series being the best Star Wars. You don't need a master codebreaker to decode the truth, Jonah. And we've enlisted the help of the creator and star of the new Hulu animated Marvel series, MODOK, Patton Oswalt, to either prove or disprove these mad ramblings. Patton, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Well, let's talk a little bit about Star Wars. And you are, I wouldn't say... The, the the biggest Star Wars fan, but you are certainly a fan and you know a lot about the franchise and clearly you know a lot about storytelling and how to make great commercial art. So why do you think it is that people love these these animated series so much in the Star Wars universe? And why are we getting so many crossovers with these characters now? Because the animated series uh, represents what was so good about Empire and Return, which is George Lucas handing his universe over to other creators who were very excited to work with and expand that universe and cared about it, you know, wanted to create something really amazing. We, we saw, you know, the kind of adventures in episode four, five, and six, but there were all these little side things going on where you're like, what happens if we follow them or go down that road? So the bounty hunters and the villains were always very intriguing. So to get to follow them, you know, what you saw with stuff like the Mandalorian and now the, the book of Boba Fett and that's all going to be so exciting. I don't really know that it's dividing line because I'm 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 older and I love all the animated stuff. I love the TV shows. I think that they're great. So anything where you see the product of someone being inspired, a creative person being inspired by another creative person is always exciting to watch. Patton, the, the Star Wars trilogy 
started off as a very tactile physical universe, you know, puppets and, and, and practical effects, models actually exploding and all of that stuff. But what George Lucas did with the prequels is almost like creating a cartoon with people in it. It almost is akin to Who Framed Roger Rabbit or something where you're dealing with these completely fabricated environments, but you're putting people into them. You know, we're seeing the evolution of that with The Mandalorian. You know, the stagecraft technology looks realistic and it looks like a world that exists on our planet, but it is not. It is, you know, screens and various things that make it feel like you're not in Manhattan Beach in, in a soundstage. As technology keeps evolving like that, are we going to keep seeing the kind of blurring of live action and animation to the point where you might be in a mocap suit playing MODOK in Guardians of the Galaxy 5? Yeah, I mean, I think that the technology just keeps getting better and better all the time. I think that what Lucas did with the prequels and then kind of what Robert Rodriguez did for a while with the Spirit films and Sin City, they were very noble experiments. They're like, is there an easier, more streamlined way to make these movies? But when it comes down to it, you got to have actors interacting with environments and, you know, it changes their performance. It makes things more real. You watch those prequels and you're watching like Hugh McGregor and Liam Neeson and they're just, you can see how miserable they are. <laughs> oh my God, I get to be in a Star Wars movie. Oh, I'm sitting in front of a green blanket for six months. These nerds, they have a tennis ball on the end of a pool cue and they're going, this is a thing's face. So talking, you know, you're like, what? So, so that, so the Mandalorian looks great because they still had them on physical sets. They're in places where you sit down, where you do things and it, it makes your performance better. And yeah, if, if they can keep blending it and making it better, as long as you still get to keep that human element, that human reactivity, that human interaction, even if it's someone in a mocap suit, you know, Andy circus still, he's there on the set. People are reacting to him. It, helps the other actors perform. And he's such a fantastic actor anyway, because he basically invented a whole new way of acting. And so to see him, you know, combine that, I think that's more of the future than just having people in front of a, a green screen. Yeah, if you go back and you watch those those special features on the the original, or the original DVD releases of the Star Wars prequels, you see how little sets there were. There was maybe like, a, you know, a, a pipe somewhere or like a couple stairs but it was there was nothing there. And like you said, you're not dealing with actors on the talent level of someone like Andy Serkis, where he can really like have a scene with you. You know, he can make King Kong come to life or he can make Caesar come to life. Like, it's very different. You also go watch like the, the extras on the, the Lord of the Rings DVDs, which are all made after the prequels. And Peter Jackson built sets. He wanted his actors on sets. It, it changes the performance. It makes it better. When they were um, doing that big siege in the Two Towers, they built that wall. They stood out there in the rain. Like it made everyone act differently. And Viggo Mortensen is saying, I'd walk out there. I'd see all the extras out there and their orc stuff in the rain. And I'd be like, maybe I'm not in the best mood today, but God damn it. They showed up. I gotta, like, I gotta do this too. Like it, there's a very famous quote by John Ford. They were out in the desert. They had to shoot some stuff and some sandstorm blew up. There was no visibility. And they're like, what are we going to shoot today? He goes, we're going to shoot the most fascinating thing you can film. We're going to film a human face. <laughs> yeah, that is, I guess, a different way of looking at filmmaking. I think some people might look at that and, and say that's boring. But those are the fundamentals of making a live action film is the contours and the things that are going on, the emotions, the feelings in someone's face. No better effect than a human face. Absolutely. That's why Eli Wallach was such a star. I wonder, as someone who is as tenured as yourself in both animation 
and live action as a writer, as a performer. Do you have a preference as to which one you prefer to apply your trade in? My preferences are always for projects. I don't really care about the medium. I care about what are we writing? How are we doing it? What is the, not the what is it about or what is it? It's the how are we about it? How is it? How are we doing it? That's what fascinates me. So live action and animation kind of don't mean as much as the actual project. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. With Star Wars The Bad Batch, it is a show that is piggybacking off of all of the Clone Wars stuff, all of the Rebel stuff, like all of this, these things that have been firmly established in the cartoon, but now they're starting to fold that stuff into, into live action. And I wonder what the process is for deciding which stories are going to be told in which way. But I, I think a lot of people probably see it the way that you see it, which is let's tell the best story in the best way possible. People want to see a story well told. They don't know what they want to see until you do it well. Nobody wanted to see movies about X-Men until someone did it well. Nobody wanted to see a movie about a little kid who can talk to dead people until they made the sixth sense. No one wants to see anything until you do it well. So all this, you know, all this pre stuff about, oh, people don't want to see movies with too many of this character or about this story. No, if you tell any story well, they'll go watch. I don't care. I don't give a, I don't care about the royal family and that movie, The Queen with uh, Helen Mirren. I, that, that, that thing could have been eight hours long and I would have been like, ah, how is it over? As long as you tell the story well, I'm into it. I don't follow sports, but if you make an amazing sports movie like White Men Can't Jump or Miracle or The Rookie or uh, The Natural, I'm all in. I just, I just tell a good story. I couldn't agree more, but I want to bring up sort of what me and Jonah have been chewing on for this entire episode, which is whether or not the Star Wars animated output is ultimately better than the live action. And I think it's different flavors of ice cream, as you point out. But I do think that in Star Wars, in the DNA of this franchise, there is an animator sensibility of unbridled imagination. How do you feel about that? Again, it depends on the project. Are you going to say that Clone Wars is better than Empire Strikes Back? Well, no, but you also can't go that Attack of the Clones is better than, like, no, Clone Wars is better than Attack of the Clones. It just depends on the project. Mandalorian is the Star Wars story that's been done in years. To just tell that story in the movies. You don't need to keep telling the Skywalker saga finally comes to an end. It came to an end in Return of the Jedi. That was the saga. That was those three movies. I don't need to see the other stuff. Just think of all new characters. I wonder if Dave Filoni being a part of, of the Mandalorian and, and asserting himself in the live action franchise is part of why these shows are really starting to click is because of that animator sensibility and that understanding of the universe. Well, definitely understanding that it's got to be characters first and then they roam around in this universe. You care about the Mandalorian's character and you care about the people that he meets. There's a friggin' Ugnaught voiced by Nick Nolte and when he dies, you're like, oh my God, my heart's breaking. And Ugnaught! So like, like looking at these different species and then also in, what I loved about the Mandalorian was Star Wars isn't just aliens, isn't just people in mass. Those are each of those represents a different culture. No one is good or the same people aren't bad. They just are in conflict. They have different aims than other people. Luke was probably trespassing on their area. You see in the Mandalorian, if you know how to talk to them, they're just like, yeah, we're just out here trying to trying to live. You know, same with the Ugnaught, same with the Jawas. Yeah, there's a there's a basic humanity to all of the characters that is primary. And I think, you know, if you're listening to this and you are you know, on the fence about what you want to do with your with your life and you're maybe want to be a writer or a director or something, 
look to the humanity of the characters that you're making first and foremost, and, and, and that will inform everything else. I hope that that, that is what the, we're getting across to you as a listener is, you know, these characters matter more so than the fantastic, uh, fantastic situations and the space and all that stuff. It's about characters. Mm-hmm. All right. So tell me a little bit about MODOK. You know, this this is a, a show that takes a Marvel universe in some pretty wild directions. I mean, the show, the show takes what we've seen so far of the Marvel universe in some wild directions. But this was always in the comics, this weirdness, this kind of Jack Kirby level of cosmic kind of latitude was always there. We just decided to do it in a very comedic, um, with a very petty and emotional character of Modoc, you know, who, who is this eighth dimensional intellect that wants to rule the world as Emperor Modoc, but for some reason is on the bottom tier of the villain world and is looked that way by the superheroes as well. So, you know, this was for readers of the comics, this won't actually be that weird. I, think if you've seen the movies or TV shows, you'd be like, wow, this is really expanding things. But that's what Kirby was always doing with his comics anyway. So I'm glad that we get to have a hand in that. Well, one of the characters that shows up is Iron Man, played by John Hamm in this show. And you've got uh, a cameo from Doctor Strange where uh, you steal uh, some pages from his prescription pad. Uh, So there's certainly lots of recognizable Marvel characters in this show for people who don't know MODOK and don't know the Jack Kirby comics. Were there any Marvel characters that you wanted to use that were cut or characters that you felt like didn't fit within the tone of the show? Everything we asked Marvel for in terms of characters and objects they let us have, which was amazing, but then it created another problem, which is, oh God, we just got what we asked for. Let's not screw this up because they gave us some pretty big toys to play with. Iron Man is just the beginning, um, as you'll see. So we didn't want to, it's like when you give a, when a cook is cooking Wagyu beef, it's like, if you screw up Wagyu beef, you probably shouldn't be a cook. So be careful what you wish for. We got what we wish for. I hope that people like what we did with it. Oh, I think this is the most delicious Wagyu beef I've ever had in my life. (laughs) Oh, delightful. Good. Delicious. And so that brings me to my kind of last question for you, Patton, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, you took Modoc, a character that was that was a Jack Kirby creation. Jack Kirby, of course, one of the great comics uh, creators of, of all time but was a little bit more obscure than some of the other uh, characters that are getting adaptations. What minor characters in either the Star Wars or the Marvel universes uh, would you like to see get their own branch of their respective franchise next? And would you do that animated or live action in, in both cases? In the Star Wars universe, I would actually watch a show totally about either the Tusken Raiders or Jawas, where it's all their language, no subtitles, but hand movements, but you can absolutely tell what the story is, what's going on, without having to know any dialogue or stuff like that. I could totally watch one of those. In the Marvel Universe, I would love to see where it's all the characters older, down like it's Spider-Man, it's Logan, it's all these guys, and a new generation has to come up, and they have to go, we have inspired them for better or worse. The younger generation always fights the older one. It's not that they... Older heroes will fight the new villains. They'll fight the new heroes. And they're going to argue about that kind of stuff. And that will be a fascinating story to tell. Someone will eventually do either a DC Universe or a Marvel Universe thing where it's all the main Marvel characters and they're very, very old. And then there's and it's a, a, a whole new crop of characters and actors. And that's going to be what the story is. That will be fascinating. Whoever does that. Well, I'd like to shout out the fact that that was essentially what Star Wars The Last Jedi was for Star Wars. 
And that's part of the reason why I love that movie so much is because it does pick up on that thing of like the yeah. heroes do age and another generation comes and maybe there's kind of skeptical yeah. of the the people that came before them. I'm a father of a, of a three-year-old and he is going to lap me in every way. He's going to be smarter than me. He's going to be yeah. more athletic than me. He's going to be all those things. And he's going to not be recognizable to me at some point. And he's going to say, why do you make all those mistakes, Dad? Why do you do all that stupid stuff? Logan, that's what the movie Logan was. I mean, Logan, Absolutely. the main tension for the movie didn't come from the villains. It came from him worrying about this young kid who had gone through the experiments that he did. And what if all these kids go evil because all they've been shown is abuse? Like they could grow up and just hurt people. So he's got it like that's where the tension was. Absolutely. Was fascinating. And I think you know, what you're describing with Star Wars, Jawas, and a foreign language is the bicycle thief in the Star Wars universe. And I'm 100% on, in on that. And I want you to direct it. You oh, have to do this yourself. Thanks, man. Wow. You're welcome. Call Kathleen Kennedy right now. I'm on it. Yeah. And, and feel free to, to, to leave me out of this process because I'll just ruin it. Just tell done. her it was your idea. Done and done. Thank you so much, Patton, for joining us. And thank you for illuminating our ideas about Star Wars and Marvel and cartoons. I hope they helped. I think they did. Each week, we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one now. Yeah, so I think a lot of mega fans like to complain about midichlorians and how they ruin the series by taking away the magic. But I think they only think that because they're introduced in The Phantom Menace, which was disappointing for a lot of other reasons. And I know that's a charge statement to begin with. But I think if midichlorians were introduced in some obscure extended universe novel written by someone who wasn't George Lucas, the mega fans would just go crazy about them and always want to tell you about them. And how could you not know about midichlorians? They're the secret of the whole force and everything like that. And they would be the, considered the greatest open secret in all of Star Wars. But because they got introduced in the same movie with Jar Jar Binks, everyone thinks they're the stupidest thing in the world. I mean, that's exactly what I was saying earlier. The fans that like really love those extended universe novels, I think that guy is spot on. Yeah, it's a good take. It's an interesting thought, but I'm going to go a different direction here. And I'm going to say, you're missing the point, my friend. Thank you for listening and thank you for giving us your take, but I think you're missing something important here. And the importance of the midichlorians isn't where they were revealed. It wasn't how they were revealed. It is that they took the mysterious force element, the thing that makes you powerful, the indescribable, ineffable spirit that binds us all and turned it into a biology lesson. Okay, now you've got these things in your body that make you a Jedi instead of, well, it's just kind of like, you know, it's it's it, new agey and cool. Like, I think, you yeah, know, what you're what you're doing right now is like you're on the side of religion instead of science. <laughs> I get it. That's I, it's clear to me now. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just saying that in the late 70s and early 80s, people were more open to the idea of new age religion and the force in Star Wars fit into that very nicely. Today, or even you know, in 1999, when Phantom Menace came out, people were like, that's ridiculous bullshit. And I don't believe in fake stuff. Of course, now in 2021, <laughs> people believe all kinds of things they read on the internet. But in the late 90s, you know, people were looking at things very rationally. And uh, what was the most popular sci-fi movie of 1999? The Matrix, a movie that explains everything that is a little kind of not difficult to follow, but uh, 
there is mystery to it, but that mystery is still related to computers and you're connected to a computer and you live inside this computer program. Star Wars, the original trilogy is like, well, the force is just a cool thing. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, it's something you can have and makes you do flips and stuff. Like I, 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 I like the take. I'm just not sure that the problem is that they were in the movies. I think the problem is that you've taken a, a fundamental element to Star Wars, which is mystical silliness, and you've given it a practical explanation, which kind of takes the fun and the magic out of it. It's called hard sci-fi, Dave. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> if you want to be like our friend and call in to the show, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on next week's episode topic, the 20th anniversary of Josie and the Pussycats. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take, but please, for the love of God, just make it weird. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we are covering the 20th anniversary of the classic satire, Josie and the Pussycats. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Galaxy Brains and rate and review us on Apple. Make it a good one. Five stars. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want some more. Say something about my velvety smooth voice. Or tell me how much I sound like David Cross. I love when people say that. Anyway, how about I read the credits now? Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikishin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant and Russ Frushtick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizik who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. Take us away, Watto. I'm a Titanian. My tricks gonna work on me. Only money.